Thanks for tuning in to the For Love of the Game podcast, where we uncover the most cherished stories of America's favorite pastime. Woven into the DNA of our country are tales from our backyards and sandlots, summer leagues to the big leagues. Every fan has a personal connection, a memory, resonating in each of us. It takes us on a journey to a time long forgotten, or a moment in our youth. That first time we heard the crack of the bat, the roar of the crowd, the smell of the fresh cut grass. And these cherished recollections sit there in the back of our minds beckoning us back to the game that we know and love, our reason to come back home, our reason for our love of the game. Today we are joined by former big leaguer and the current special assistant to the general manager for the Cincinnati Reds, Mr. John Morris. John, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Jim. Good morning. So you've been pretty fortunate enough to have a longer career than most within the game of baseball, but As a kid growing up on Long Island, where did it all start for you? Who introduced you to the game of baseball? Well, I was fortunate enough to grow up in Nassau County in a little town, North Belmore, New York. And I was born and raised there. And my dad actually first introduced me to baseball as a very little boy. Um, He's probably seven or eight years old. And I remember going to Shea Stadium quite a bit. Yankee Stadium uh, may have been the first game I ever remember going to, listening to the voice of Bob Shepard introducing the, the New York Yankees. But uh, it really was a an early in my life love affair with the New York Mets that that really excited me about baseball. Okay, so it was it was the Mets. I know there's usually a split. It's almost half and half. I know my family half Yankees, half Mets fans. So um, who were some of your players growing up on the Mets that you really enjoyed watching? Well, I love Tom Seaver. I used to mimic his drop-and-drive pitching style and see if I can get my, my uh, back knee dirty, trying to uh, create velocity. But I loved uh, Tommy Agee and Cleon Jones and uh, Ron Swoboda. And those Miracle Mets in 1969 were really awesome. But the, the cool part about going to games as a little boy is, you know, I, I love the San Francisco Giants because of Willie Mays and Willie McCovey. So whenever the Giants came to Shea Stadium, we went. And my, my older brother loved Hank Aaron and the Atlanta Braves. So we always had to go see the Braves. And my dad loved the St. Louis Cardinals and Lou Brock and Bob Gibson. So we had to see the Cardinals. But the common thread in all of those teams was we all loved uh, our amazing Mets. So uh, baseball was a, an integral part of my life growing up. Yeah, and just having the opportunity to to watch some of those great players, especially at an early age, I'm sure that – definitely trapped in and hooked you on the game for life. Um, are there any specific moments that you can recall as a fan, you know, going to any of these games? Uh, I, I remember not so much going to games, but watching them on TV and, and my black and white TV. I remember in, in third grade uh, being part of the classroom that was watching the game five clincher. And I, I specifically remember Cleon Jones catching the last out of game five and the Mets winning the world series and how it, it just seemed the the classroom and the building exploded with joy. And, you know, most of my memories I remember as a kid watching big league baseball was on TV. Unfortunately, most of the games we went to, we sat in the upper deck and, and froze and wound up leaving in the seventh inning because it was so cold. But, you know, as I got older, my dad continued to expose us to baseball and to big league games and to Little League and to 
uh, Bill Major's Boys Club in, in high school and junior in junior high. So it, it really was an evolution, but it started at a very early age, seven or eight years old. And, you know, every kid dreams of playing in the bigs when he's younger and, you know, um, hoping that he has a chance to have a career. Um, and when for you did you start to realize, like, hey, I, I'm pretty good at this. Maybe I can take this to, to college or the next level. Uh, I remember in college, Jim, I, I went to Seton Hall University and I was recruited as a pitcher. And after my freshman year, I decided that I didn't want to do that anymore. And my son back and uh, had an opportunity to play a lot in the fall of that season. Back then, you could play 50 games, 40 or 50 games, which was great. So I got about 200 at bats and really started to figure some things out. But the moment when I realized that I could compete on a national level was later that summer when I went to Cape Cod and I, I got a, a chance to play against uh, the best amateur players in the country from all over the United States. And I was able to hold my own. So that was the moment when I realized that I could really do this. Okay. And you actually had a, a great experience there and you end up winning the, the MVP one summer. What was that experience like for you? Well, I, I tell my wife and I tell anybody that cares to listen that that was probably the, the most uh, important 10 weeks of my life from a baseball perspective because I, I learned so much about myself. I learned that I could compete at a high level. I learned how to really socialize. I was living in a beach house with four other guys from around the country and <clears throat> learning how to take care of yourself and pay your bills and clean up after yourself. And those are all great uh, life experiences that help you for later on in life. But it was, uh, it really set me up for a career in baseball that I, that I made the decision that that's what I wanted. And it was really the that Cape Cod experience that laid the foundation for the next 40 years for me. Yeah. And so in 1982, um, you ended up being drafted 10th overall by the Royals. And I'm sure the, the whole draft process looks a, a little bit different now than it did back then. But what was that whole um, you know, process like for you? And where, where were you actually when you, when you found out that you were drafted? Well, I remember I was in the gymnasium shooting baskets on the Seton Hall gym floor when Mike Shepard came running in. Uh, back then, we didn't have cell phones. Uh, my mother w was not uh, available at the time. She was working. Uh, so I actually got a call to the school office, the baseball office, and Mike Shepard came down. He was the head coach and, and told me. But I was so fortunate in that leading up to the draft, I had a, a fabulous coaching staff at Seton Hall. I had Mike Shepard, who was the head coach. He was a, a tough disciplinarian who really uh, encouraged us to master the fundamentals of the game and to always hustle. We had Ed Blankmeyer, who's spent the last – 30 years at St. John's University, he came on board and he was an expert in defense and base running. And our hitting coach was Fred Hopke, who really helped me out a lot offensively and taught me how to use the whole field with authority to, and to drive the ball the opposite field. So it was a perfect storm of great coaching and uh, figuring some things out on my own that set me up to, to go in the first round of the draft, which was an incredibly exciting experience for me. I can't tell you. Yeah. 
And what was, I know you had a, a great foundation there, it sounds like, at Seton Hall. But as you transitioned into professional baseball, um, did you go through any you know, learning curves? What were some of the highs and lows of, of that transition like? The biggest transition I noticed, Jim, was learning to face good pitching every night. I remember my first summer after I signed, I was playing in the Florida State League, which is a, a high A level. And it was nothing about the crowds that was great. It, it was not a, a well-attended league, but the, the quality of the pitching was really good. Every night I was facing hard throwers, uh, left-handed and right-handed, where in college maybe you would see pitches of that quality maybe you know twice a week, and now I'm seeing it six nights a week. And so getting used to the, the velocity on a consistent basis really made you uh, really perk up and pay attention and make sure that you, your swing was short so that you, you could get to the pitching on it on a daily basis. And then just the getting into the routine, that was a transition as well of, you know, getting out there and preparing your body every day to play, unlike in college baseball where you're playing three or four days a week. And learning how to do it every day over a long period of time was, was a transition, but that's where I, I really felt Mike Shepard had helped me mentally prepare for this and when I was hearing other guys complain about how hot it was or how lousy the field was uh, or the lousy bus that we had to travel on that, that, that didn't phase me in the, in the least. Yeah. It sounds like, um, you know, I guess he had, uh, he preached a little bit of mental toughness, which is similar um, to, to my college experience. That was one of the biggest takeaways um, that, that I took um, just the, the mental toughness that you have to bring in, every single day to, you know, every single pitch, especially when you get to this level, um, it, it's on a, a whole different level. Um, but so you spent seven years in, in the big leagues and I'm sure you've had some pretty amazing experiences. Do any in particular stick out to you that, that you'll never forget? The night that we won the national league championship in 1987, uh, beating the San Francisco giants is a, uh, is a moment I, I won't forget. Uh, we were picked earlier in that year to finish fourth in the national league East. And we had a, a great season. We got out of the gate really fast and got out to a 10 game lead at the all-star break. And then the Mets started to make their charge. And I remember late in 1987 in September of that year, we went into Chase Stadium with a, a two and a half game lead. And, uh, you know, the Mets almost won that first game. Terry Pendleton had a huge home run. And instead of being up a game and a half after that night, we were up three and a half and, and we kind of coasted to the end. But that whole 162 game experience, uh, playoff baseball on a nightly basis, and then beating the Giants and, and playing in the World Series, eventually losing to the Minnesota Twins was was probably the greatest seasonal experience I've ever had uh, just because it had just so many amazing moments that are permanently etched in my mind. Yeah. That the crowd atmosphere for, for all those games, because that, the world series went seven games as well, right? It did. Yeah, it did. And we, and the home team won every game. So the twins won all their games in Minnesota and we won all our games. in wow. St. Louis. so all we had to do is win one road game and we couldn't do it because uh the Twins had a very, very good team, and they had Frank Viola, who was 
also from Long Island and neighboring East Meadow. Um, he wound up being the MVP of the World Series. Wow. That, that's that's got to be pretty special. I know the outcome wasn't what you wanted, but being able to go up against um, someone, you know, f- from the same area on that stage, it's got to be pretty cool. Um, it was awesome, Jim. I, you know, I'm very proud of the fact that in the 1987 World Series, we had four players from Long Island, three from Nassau County, and three that lived within three miles of each other. I, I grew up in North Belmore. Gene Larkin, who was on the Twins team, grew up two blocks from me. He went to Chaminade High School and then Columbia. He played for the Twins. Frank Viola grew up in East Meadow, went to St. John's. And Sal Butera was a catcher with the Twins, and he lived out in uh, Suffolk County. So four guys from Long Island in one World Series is pretty awesome representation. Yeah. And, you know, speaking about going back to your roots there, um, you had an opportunity to go and play at Chase Stadium where you used to grow up watching the Mets play. Did did you have, was that sort of a, a homecoming experience for you? Did you have a lot of people come out and watch you those first couple games? I did. I remember uh, the first night that I played at Shea Stadium, we had a, a twilight doubleheader. We actually had a six-game series in four days. It was August of 1986. And, uh, you know, we were 20 games out. The Mets were running away with the thing. And my manager, Whitey Herzog, said, hey, every right-handed pitcher this series, you're – you're starting. So I got to play five of the six games opening night. Uh, the first night, I probably had 50 people on the pass list. And knowing that Sid Fernandez was pitching the next day, uh, I had one on the pass list. So <laughs> it changed quite a bit. Uh, but that, that, that first time going in, there's nothing like it. It's uh, the ultimate buzz. Yeah, I, I, I can only imagine. that That's got to be pretty special. So I want to do a few rapid fire baseball questions for you um, just throughout your playing career and just get, get some hot takes if you will. Um, So I'll I'll go down the list here and you just name the the first um, thing that pops to your mind. So who was your, your favorite teammate throughout all, all your playing career? Favorite teammate of all time, Willie McGee with the St. Louis Cardinals uh, represents everything that's right with baseball. He's a, he's a dear friend. He was a fantastic player. He was humble, he was kind, he was smart, and he's currently a coach on the major league staff with the St. Louis Cardinals, and I had a chance to speak to him last week. So Willie is at the top of my very impressive list. Awesome. Who was the toughest pitcher you ever faced? Toughest pitcher was Nolan Ryan. First time I ever faced him in the Astrodome. Uh, It was just really unfair. (laughs) <laughs> and it, it wasn't a lot of fun uh it's it just uh, i still have flashbacks about it and not and they always end up the same way <laughs> uh, unfair is a is a good description that, that's a yep. great way to put it who um who was the most talented guy you ever got to play with most talented player i ever played with was probably uh, offensively george brett who i played with in kansas city he was just an offensive machine. He just dominated uh, in the batter's box and just had this presence about him that you couldn't get him out. But the probably the greatest athlete and most enjoyable to watch was probably Ozzie Smith. Playing five years with Ozzie, in my mind, he's the greatest shortstop of all time. And it, it's almost you think he could have been in uh, Cirque du Soleil uh, the way the way he moved. It was 
acrobatic. It was athletic. It was, he made it look easy and it was none of that. Um, just a phenomenal shortstop who really redefined the position in the 1980s. Yeah. That's why they call him the wizard, right? That's correct. So what was your favorite ballpark to play in? I love coming to Shea Stadium. I I don't just say that because I'm a homer, but uh, I played five years in St. Louis. I loved playing there because the fans are awesome. But there was nothing like coming home. You know, it's like walking into somebody's house for a party. Some houses feel warm and inviting. Others don't feel as much. And there was something about coming into Shea Stadium where I knew there was going to be electricity in the stands that night. I love the hitting background. Uh, I got up a little more to face Dwight Gooden and David Cohn and these Ron Darling and these really good pitchers. So there was something about that that worked. You know, and conversely, on the other side, when I played one year in the American League, I, I hated going into Yankee Stadium. As, as awesome as it was, it just didn't feel right. The batter's box didn't feel good. The background didn't feel good. Uh, I had no history there, so there was a, an unknown factor. But, uh, you know, I, I love I love going to games uh, as a kid at the Yankee Stadium. I love watching Yankee games now. I love going there to scout. Uh, I just didn't really care for it when I, in the limited opportunities I had to play there. Yeah, that, that's, that's what you hear a lot of opposing players. Um, they're not too comfortable going in. I know the Bronx is, uh, can be a little intimidating, so I un- understand where you're coming from. Um, yeah. But would you, would you rather – Day games or night games? What were your favorite? I like night games. Uh, the, the majority of them, you know, probably 80% of your games in the big leagues are night games. And it's, it's just easier to get into a routine um, of knowing, you know, I got a 7 o'clock game. I'm going to get to the park at 3. I'm going to stretch at 3.30. I take my extra batting practice and my, do my defensive work. So it was easier to get into a routine with that. A lot of times for the day games, the, the workout schedule is abbreviated. It's shorter. It seemed like guys are rushed a little bit more preparing for a one o'clock game. And I think uh, if players were to, if you were to take a, an anonymous poll, 90% of them would prefer night games. Yeah, and I think that holds true. Um, I spent four seasons um, in the front office with the uh, Scranton Wilkes-Barre Rail Riders, and one of the I don't want to say biggest complaints, but I know the players definitely didn't like the um, school day games where we would have, we would start at 1030 in the morning. And I know the the coaches absolutely hated that. And because of the workout schedule and the routines that these guys are on. Um, so that's, um, I wasn't, wasn't surprised to hear you say that. Let's just, let's well, just say that. I will say this, though, Jim. You know, when those games are over, you know, the, the coaches and the players quickly change their tune to how happy they are to be out of there by uh, 1 o'clock or 4 o'clock and to have the rest of the day off to maybe go have dinner with their families. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. And uh, the hard part for those morning games is, you know, actually getting up and getting to the park and, and getting your work in. But then the rest of the day seems to be okay. So I'll, I'll switch the tune a little bit here and ask you a few um, opinion questions. Um, do you think there will ever be another 300-game winner in the bigs? I do not. Um, and the reason I say that is uh, pitchers are not pitching as many innings. 
And, you know, a lot of the games nowadays, if you go into the seventh inning, a lot of the games are tied 3-3, 2-2, 5-5. And in most circumstances, that starting pitcher is out. So I think you're going to see a lot of the elite pitchers who are going to be like Jacob deGrom, you know, win 11 or 10 to 12 games and have a great whip or a really low ERA that's going to allow them to be elite. But, you know, it used to be where if you threw 300 innings in a year, uh, you were considered a, a stud. Now there's only a handful that are throwing 200 innings a year. So the fact that the starters are not hanging around as long through no fault of their own, it's just the strategy that's been employed by managers and front offices to rely more heavily on bullpens. I, I, I doubt that you're going to see a 300 game winner and I hope I'm wrong. Yeah. And do you think that'll affect the selection process when people and, you know, these players are starting to be considered for the hall of fame? I know you have guys, these absolute studs, like, like a Justin Verlander or Max Scherzer, or, you know, even Clayton Kershaw, who um, their win totals probably won't even get close to the 300 mark. Yeah, I think that'll be taken into consideration. I think Verlander and Scherzer are the exceptions. You know, they still have the ability to go deep in the games and to go through lineups three times plus and to not uh, show any decline as the game is proceeding. So those guys are the exceptions. I think they, they their careers started a little bit earlier prior to the uh, the analytics information age that really has uh, suggested that pitchers don't go three times through a lineup. I think they were just ahead of that curve. So, but I don't, I don't see going forward uh, too many pitchers that are going to be permitted to, to go three times through the lineup. Uh, You're going to have to really prove that you can do it before you get permission to proceed. Yeah, (laughs) that's, that's a great point. Um, Now, as, as a hitter um, from your point of view, What's harder, hitting 400 in a season or in 56 straight games? My answer to that is yes. <laughs> I, I don't know if either of them will ever be achieved. Uh, you know, the reliance so much on, on bullpens is, you know, you can have a starter go five and then bring in four flamethrowers all throwing 95 plus uh, to finish out a game. And that's a winning formula for a lot of teams. Um, so, you know, to to be able to sustain that past 56 games, I, I don't know if that'll be done. Uh, Joe DiMaggio's record, I think, is safe for now. And, and also, on the on the flip side, I think if anybody's ever going to hit 400, it's going to be this season. It's going to be somebody who gets really hot for two months and doesn't cool off. But I, I still think to do that over 162 games uh, – is really going to be difficult. If you look at the season that, you know, Christian Yelich had last year, uh, you know, he wound up hitting 320, which is, uh, which is amazing. Um, But, you know, his numbers were much more elevated. And and then as the season wore on with the heat and the travel and pitchers uh, having the upper hand late in the year, as the hitters are getting fatigued, you could, you could see his numbers coming back a little bit. Yeah, definitely. No, that's, that's a great point. Um, so I got one last rapid fire for you here. You're managing a game seven and you can pick any pitcher past or present to be on the mound. Who do you got starting that game seven? Bob Gibson. 
Bob Gibson. Bob Gibson, no, no hesitation there. He was, uh, in my mind, the, the toughest competitor uh, I ever saw, and and maybe at such a young age, I, I was I was just so impressed by him. He was unflappable. Uh, he he always wanted the ball in big games. He he was not coming out, and um, he was a gladiator. And you know, he was drafted in several sports. He was an elite basketball player. He could hit. Um, I think he won 300 games, or he's definitely in the Hall of Fame. But you know, he's. He's as tough as they come. Uh, but then you know, there's so many great pitchers today. Uh, you know, that, this Walker Buehler guy with the Dodgers is somebody I really admire watching him. I, I wish I could see more of his games on the West Coast, but he looks like uh, he could be the next elite pitcher in Major League Baseball. Yeah, he, he he's uh, definitely got that firearm and very exciting to watch. Um, yeah. So you spent – like I mentioned before, you had seven years in the bigs and you were able to roll that into a career off the field. Why did you decide to stay involved with the game? Well, when I, when I played, uh, I was very fortunate at the end of my 12th season, I was back in AAA. I, I made the decision that I was going to leave as a player on my terms instead of having the jersey ripped off my back. So I was having a lot of back problems at the end of my baseball playing career. And I decided, you know what, it's probably time to exit stage left, go back and get my degree, which I did. And then after uh, six months later, I got a phone call from Joe Madden, who at the time was the farm director for the California Angels. And he asked me if I wanted to get into coaching. And he invited me to go to Midland, Texas the following year, uh, the Angels AA affiliate. And it, it was great. I, I recaptured my spirit for the game, but I, I started, I immediately had to start looking at the game through a different set of eyes and that the game was no longer about me. It was about helping 25 other players get better. And I think that's where a lot of former players struggle with uh, the idea of not playing anymore is, you know, they're not just taking care of one person anymore. They're in charge of 12 hitters or 12 pitchers. But if you're managing, you got all 24. So that's the biggest adjustment. I realized I liked it a lot. And I, I but I also learned that there was a, a lot to learn. So I did that for 12 years. And then at the end of 12 years of doing that, uh, I realized that, you know, phys the phys physically the toll was taking on me, on my back and my knees and my neck in my hips, but I still love baseball. And I, I got into a more of an evaluation role. Uh, and I spent the last 14 years with the Reds scouting and evaluating and working on my iPad and watching about 200 games a year. And I, and I love it more than ever. Yeah. And that's, that's pretty cool. You're able to um, still, you know, stick with and, and be, uh, a part of the game you loved, you know, growing up and, and getting to play. And um, you mentioned, you know, watching games and, and doing things on your iPad. And I'm sure um, the technology has, has certainly changed um, from the time that you got into baseball. Um, but what's, what's a few major differences um, that have taken place in the player development process from, from when you started your career? Well, it's changed quite a bit, Jim, is, uh, you know, I, I never tell people when they ask me to compare how things are today to how things were back when I played. 
I never say it's better. I never say it's worse. I just say it's different. And it is. Um, the technology that's used today is absolutely incredible. And I applaud players, coaches, and managers for doing everything they can to better themselves. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, when, it, when it's seven o'clock or one o'clock, it, it's time to go out and play and to put all that information on the side and whatever you use to prepare for the game. Now you got to go out and play and perform. And Major League Baseball is a results oriented uh, game. It's based on wins and losses. It's not they don't care about development. The developing has to happen in A ball, double A and triple A. So the the information that is provided for these players nowadays to get better is really incredible. They have extra coaches, they have nutritionists, they have sports psychologists, they have uh, people that just, you know, analytics departments that just break down information for players. And, it, you know, a lot of it comes down to the player. How much does he want? Does he want a little bit of this? Or does he want a lot of this? Does he want hands-on? Does he want to be left alone? And the psychology of knowing your players is so important, like who, who wants it and who doesn't. And part of my job is, is filtering through the information to see how much the kid wants or may not want. So that's a, a challenge in baseball. It's great that it's all available. The game is much, much different. I don't say it's better or worse. It's different. And uh, uh, it's, it, in my mind, it's still the greatest game in the world to watch. Yeah, definitely. I would, I would agree, agree with you on that one. But, yeah, it, it certainly is pretty crazy with all the technology they have. I know I was watching um, uh, an interview with, I think it was Trevor Bauer and Sonny Gray, and they were talking about, um, I forget exactly what the, um, the camera was that they were using, but it can, it can, break it down by millisecond almost and show you where you're releasing your slider or your change up and what type of break you're getting and the spin rate on the ball. It's absolutely insane to, to think about that players can break it down to like almost a m micro level like that. Um, but you mentioned Walker Bueller um, as being an exciting player to watch. Who else do you enjoy watching in today's game? Well, I love I love the guy who's on our pitching staff. I love Luis Castillo. I think he's an <clears throat> an underrated superstar that we acquired several years ago from the Marlins, and Luis has developed into a top uh, elite starting pitcher. And he's probably got the best changeup in baseball. Uh, we're on a smaller market team, so he's as not as well known a name as some of the other top guys. But he's a guy to keep an eye on in the coming years. I wouldn't be surprised if he competes for a Cy Young award, but my, actually my favorite pitcher nowadays is uh, Jacob deGrom with the Mets. Uh, and not just because he's won two Cy Youngs in a, in a row. I've, I've watched Jacob since he got drafted at Stetson university as a, as a shortstop. And not only is he a great pitcher, but he, he's done a lot of great off the field charitable work. And um, my wife is, and the recipient of that, she, my wife is on the board of directors for St. Jude's Children's Research in Memphis, Tennessee. And Jacob last year did a, a fundraising meet and greet uh, for four fans who auctioned off and, and bid on him. And Jacob uh, was incredible with these people and was patient and took his time and answered all their questions and laughed and told stories. So for me, Jacob is uh, at the top of the list in terms of 
appreciating his talent and, and realizing what, what a good guy he is. Yeah. And, and how can you not root for guys like that, especially if they take the time and, and they're genuine, um, you know, off the field as well. And hopefully he can stay healthy because he, he is very fun to, to watch pitch. That is, that's for sure. Yeah. But John, I have a couple more questions for you here and I'll let you go. Um, if, if you could go back in time and be a part of any team in the history of the game, who would it be and why? Well, the, you know, I mentioned them earlier, but I, I was just such a fan of the San Francisco Giants growing up. And my two favorite players were Willie Mays and Willie McCovey. And they didn't win a World Series uh, with the Giants, but I was just always fascinated by them. Uh, Willie Mays to me was magical just with his basket catches and the way he could run. And I always used to have these arguments with my older brother about who the, the greatest player in the world was. And I would say Mays. And he would say Hank Aaron. So we would argue about that. And we're still arguing about it today, 50 years later. But I don't know. It was something so cool about them and those Giants uniforms and, and playing with Juan Marichal and just these really good Giant teams who could never get off the hump, over the hump in the late 60s and early 70s. I, I guess that that's the team I would choose. But then when, you know, when I realized they were playing in Candlestick Park, and whenever I went out to Candlestick Park, I hated it. I just uh, – because it would be 80 degrees in the daytime, and then by the fourth inning, you're sitting on the bench and you're wrapped in a parka and a, and a win winter coat because of the, wind the winds were so strong. So uh, I wish I could uh, delete that the Candlestick Park part and just play with Mays and McCovey. That would, that would suffice. Yeah, that, that would be, that'd be pretty special. I think they got a pretty uh, solid setup right now. Um, what is that, AT&T Park out there? Is that what it's called Yeah, now? it's a beautiful stadium. It just really, they did it right out there. And they're right, uh, right inside the bay, and the, the view is spectacular. And the, the porch is up on right field, McCovey Cove. It's, it's a gorgeous facility. San Francisco's got a, a good one there. Yeah, and you mentioned Mays uh, making the, the basket catches. And I, I do have to tell you, um, because um, in high school, I think my – my dad's told me this story a handful of times already, and I'm sure he might have mentioned it to you, but he was a sophomore your senior year. You guys were playing against each other. And then one of his teammates, another guy, I'm blanking on his name, but also got drafted, and he smokes one to center field. I think you might have been playing center that day. And he just, just describes you beelining it, and then you're tracking this ball down, you're running, you make, you make the catch, and then you flip over the fence. <laughs> <laughs> and they're just like he's not getting up <laughs> yeah uh, well, i may have done that and uh you know now i've paid for it 50 years later with <laughs> artificial body body parts but you know at the young at the time you do things like that uh, i don't know i call that those people young strong and stupid uh we, we do crazy things in our youth because our body permits it uh but we pay for it later on but i appreciate your dad telling you that story i i I wonder about the uh, authenticity of it. I, I don't know. Maybe maybe your dad's making me sound a little better than it was the, that that particular play. <laughs> <laughs> he he might be, but I don't know. He's he's got a pretty solid memory, so yeah. um, we'll we'll give you we'll give you. The, uh... <laughs> I'll thank your dad when I talk to that, that one. There's but, there's an old saying about. Um, you know, stuff from our childhood and that uh, the older we get, the better we were when we were younger. 
So we'll, we'll just attribute that to your dad right now. <laughs> That's right. We'll, <laughs> we'll go with that. Um, and as we sit here on the morning of opening day, finally, um, as, as a fan here, what are your predictions for the outcome of the 2020 season? Who do you got coming out on top? Well, I am very excited and pleasantly shocked that we are here at opening day with the pandemic and everything that's happened in our world uh, the last four months. And I'm, I'm just really amazed that MLB is able to pull this off right now uh, as it stands. It's still a day-to-day situation. But I really like uh, where the New York Yankees are at, and I'm going to go off the board. I'd be crazy not to pick my Cincinnati Reds. So I'm going to go with the Yankees and the Reds in the World Series. I know the easy pick is the Yankees and the Dodgers, but I'm not going to do that because uh, I root for my team. So I'll go to the Yankees and the Reds, and let's hope for a repeat of the 1976 World Series when I believe the, the Reds won uh, four games to none. So if it came to that, I'd be very happy. Happy for <laughs> Yankee fans and more happy for me and my Cincinnati Reds. Yeah, that would be um, me being the Yankee fan. You know, that, that would be cool, but hopefully we can have a, <laughs> maybe be- a little bit better than a, a 4-0 sweep. But, yeah, uh, I mean, I don't know if Yankee fans would ever, uh, would ever hear the end of it if they let a small market team like the Cincinnati Reds beat them. But, you know, stranger things have happened. That's right. That's right. But, uh, well, John, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on here today. And uh, best of luck this season. Thanks for having me, Jim. Enjoy the rest of your day. Enjoy opening day. And uh, let's hope we have 60 games with playoffs, uh, World Series, and minimal illness for players and fans. That wraps up today's conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, please give our podcast a like and share it with your friends. And if you have a baseball-related story to tell that you would like to have featured on the show, drop us a line in the comments, or you can send a direct message to our Facebook page. Thanks again for tuning in, and until next time, I'm Jim Tunison, and this is For Love of the Game.